0: Now to our passage 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 to 25 the sermon is called to suffer unjustly. Now last week we looked at suffering in general. I did mention a little bit that that this talk about unjust suffering, but in the passage today we're going into the second half and we're going to narrow this down to talk about suffering unjustly. On January 9th, 1985, pastor Risto Kulichev, and and I'm not very good at Bulgarian, but I think that's how you pronounce his name, in Bulgaria was arrested and put into prison. His crime was that he preached in his church even though the state had appointed another man, the pastor, a man that his congregation did not elect. So in other words, the the congregation elected Risto the pastor. The Bulgarian government came in and said, you're not the pastor, this guy is the pastor. Well, Kulachev got they got arrested for that, for disobeying the government. His trial was a mockery of justice. He was sentenced to eight months in prison. Now the question is, how would you respond to such a, a trial? A, a monkey, you know, just um uh what's the word I'm looking for? Monkey court, is that what I'm trying to say? Um uh you you've done the right thing, you've obeyed God. And now you're suffering unjustly. I messed that up, didn't I? That's what you guys are laughing about. That's fine. I'm suffering unjustly now. I'm not going to get bitter. Well, when he was thrown into prison, he made Christ known every way he could. And while he was proclaiming Christ, both prisoners... And jailers began asking many questions, and it turned out that his ministry was more fruitful there than would be expected had he stayed in his church. God was better served by his prison sentence than it would have been had he been a free man. Haristo's imprisonment was unjust. He was obeying the Lord and ministering to people in the church, and yet he didn't react in a belligerent manner, he didn't throw out the fact that he had his rights. What he did is he trusted God and kept doing the right thing and God blessed. Now the center of our passage today, which is almost the center of the book, says this. For to this you have been called. That's verse 21 of First Peter chapter 2. Do you know what we've been called to? Our call to salvation is a call to suffer unjustly. Now nobody wants to sign up for that. As a matter of fact, I seriously doubt the, the 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 salvation message that was given to you was, yeah, I'll trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and plan on suffering unjustly the rest of your life here on earth. Nobody gives that kind of a salvation presentation. But what have we been called to? Verse number 18, be subject to the unjust. Verse number 19, for this is a gracious thing that when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So we've been called to suffer unjustly. It is a call to suffer at the hands of others for doing right, for following conscience, for obeying Christ. And I think the first time that this happens to a new believer or believers at all, it comes as a complete shock, doesn't it? I've heard the stories of people who trust Christ as their Savior they go and tell their family they're so excited about it. They think their family's going to be excited. And their family just reacts so horribly. Sometimes even kicks them out of the house. So says things like, you've ruined our lives. I can't believe you've done that. You turn your back on us. And, and so on and so forth. And I would say that unlike the pastor from Bulgaria, the overwhelming majority of us will never see an immediate correlation here on earth between our suffering and its results, because the the suffering that we serve here on earth, so many times will not be rewarded until we get to heaven. These are the things that we only acquire by faith, and so we have to be very careful that we we don't say, "Okay, God, look, I made a deal with you. I got saved. I'm obeying you. I'm doing. I'm following you in the hard things." Where is this suffering coming from? Well, the suffering's coming from the fact that God called you to that and, um, that you're going to be abundantly rewarded. Verse number 20. Look at verse number 20. It says, um, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It brings favor from the Lord when you suffer. He continues his argument with an absolute statement. You have been called to suffer unjustly. And now he, he, what he's done is he said, You will get rewarded for suffering unjustly. That was the first half of this passage. We're going into the second half of this passage. And the second reason that we're called to suffer unjustly is that is the pattern that we receive from Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered unjustly, didn't He? Jesus is our example. He also suffered. Verse number 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. We are following the steps of our Savior Jesus Christ when we suffer unjustly. Now look at verse number 21 again, and we'll see the two main reasons that Christ suffered unjustly. Um, actually, I skipped over Hebrews 2.10. Let me read it real quick. The, it also speaks of Christ's suffering. It says, For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, we talked about that last week, didn't we? And we, uh, we understand that the suffering of Jesus Christ, what did it do? It showed His perfect obedience. It didn't make Him more perfect. He was perfect. What it showed was the depth of the perfection of Christ's obedience through suffering. And um, unjust suffering was Christ's path to glory, and it must be ours. Do you want glory? Then you must suffer. If you're an Olympic athlete, if you want glory, you work harder than anybody else. You're more disciplined than anybody else. I remember back in the days, and if you don't like golf, tune this out. Back in the day when Tiger Woods was wiping the map with everybody. Remember that? Those who follow golf? He worked harder than almost any other golfer. He was out on the range hitting more balls. He he was analyzing his game, watching more tape than anybody else, working, working, working. And the glory of Tiger Woods at the height of his career was directly proportionate to the amount of work that he was doing off, the amount of discipline and suffering. And there for a while, uh, he was training with some of the Army Rangers. I don't know if you knew that, some of his physical training. He was a physical specimen. And... If we are going to receive glory in heaven, we must go through unjust suffering. And the first thing we want to notice about this is that Christ is our standard. Look at verse 21 again. It says, Christ suffered because, or we must suffer because Christ also suffered what? For you. You know what this is called? This is called substitution. We call this a substitutionary atonement. We call this substitution. Christ suffered for you. Secondly, The second reason that uh, we must suffer is that leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christ left us an example. Not Not only did he leave a substitution, he left us an example of how you do it. How do you suffer unjustly? You do it just like Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful word picture here. And it's it's that word example. The word example is hypogramome. And it it's a very fascinating picture. You know what it is? When they used to teach children how to write Hebrew, and maybe some of you did this when you were younger, when you wrote English, they would have the children trace over the letters. And they would write the letters and trace over the letters. Did anybody do that when they were in, in school? Okay, a few of you. I don't know if they do that anymore. They used to, right? That's the picture. Christ's example. When you suffer, listen, when you suffer unjustly, you are literally tracing over the letters of Christ's life. Isn't that awesome? I mean, to me, I mean, I don't like suffering. Just to be honest with you, just or unjust, I don't like it. But if I'm going to do it, To know that I'm tracing over the letters of Christ, that that is a huge comfort for me. And I know it is for you as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful word picture. The English word example is not even a a good word. Actually, there are no English words that can express it well enough. The, The word example or model or pattern, they're too weak for this word. Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model. He Can I use the word paradigm? He's the paradigm by which Christ write, writes large letters of the gospel in your life. In other words, this. its He is the paradigm, and when you follow Christ and you're suffering unjustly, you are literally writing in large letters the glory of Jesus Christ. What a privilege we have, even though it's not a fun thing to talk about. What a privilege we have to suffer like Christ. Jesus Christ left us this pattern over which we can trace out our lives in order that we might follow in his footsteps. Now, what he does is he talks about substitution, and he talks about example, and then when he... um, unpacks it in the next few verses. He unpacks them in reverse order. So we're going to deal with them in the same order that Peter dealt with them. And the first thing I want to talk about is Christ's example. The question is this, how did Christ exemplify unjust suffering? Well, verse number 21 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, we, we, here we find the first of five references to Isaiah 53. I'm not going to go through all of them and, and unpack them. I'm just going to refer to them. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. This is the first reference. In Isaiah 53, verse number 9, it says, "...they made his grave with the wicked, and a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence... There was no deceit in his mouth. That's Isaiah fifty three nine. Jesus never violated the law of God during his suffering. In Isaiah fifty three nine, the word violence is sometimes translated lawlessness. He he never violated the law. He never committed sin, even under the most difficult of circumstances when he is being treated unjustly. Jesus never sinned. That's our pattern. We should never sin. 1 Peter 2.21 uh, Peter further says, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Why does he say that? It, because it's not enough to say that he committed no sin. Uh, well, you could say it is. The second statement is, is literally a strengthening of the first. It's a strengthening of it. It's not only that he, did he not commit sin, but it's It's where sin always shows up. Let me ask you a question. Normally, what's the first evidence that you're sinning? When you open your mouth. Am I right? We, we learned that at a young age. I I remember, um, funny story. When I was a kid, we, we had this dog. His name was, we had two dogs. They were Pekingese. Boogie and Sam were their names. And uh, if you know anything about them, they bark. And and when I was real little, my mother would tell the dogs to shut up. And pretty soon I picked that up and I'd say, shut up, shut up, shut up to the dogs. And she didn't like that. So then she started teaching, we don't say shut up. And and the way that it was communicated to me, I literally as a little child thought shut up was a curse word. Okay. So I'm in school. And I'm in third grade and the playground bully is picking on me. I'm on the basketball court and, and I was about this big around and um he he was picking on me. I wanted to play basketball and he wouldn't give me a basketball. He kept knocking me down and that stuff. And I finally got so mad at him, the maddest I've ever gotten in his life, and I just looked at him and I said, Herbie, shut up. And he wasn't even he wasn't talking to me, he was just stealing the ball. But, um, the sin that came out of my, the first sin that came out from my heart was through my mouth, and that's true of a lot of us, isn't it? Most of the time, when we're suffering unjustly, the first place that we'll sin is with our mouth, and the mouth of Jesus uttered no deceit. Now, the word for deceit means any kind of sin of the tongue. It can be deception, innuendo, slander, uh, in a myriad of ways, but no wickedness came out of his mouth. No wickedness ever came across his tongue. He simply committed no sin by act or by spoken word. What a high bar Jesus sets for us, does not he? But not only that, he also, not only did he not sin, but he didn't respond sinfully. Verse number 23, when he was, uh, or verse number, yeah, when he uh, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So he fulfilled the truth of James 3, 2, which says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Let me repeat that one more time. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. There's only been one, Jesus Christ. He did not stumble in what he said when he was suffering unjustly. He didn't open his mouth. So so Peter has it, while he reviled, he didn't revile in return. While he was suffering, he spoke no threats. That's the perfect standard and that is hard to follow, isn't it? Isn't that hard to follow when you're suffering at the hands of someone else? I had another time with the same playground bully. Can I tell you another playground bully story? Okay. Herbie, that was his name. He was a bully named Herbie. Um, Herbie was picking on me and he started verbally threatening me. And he was, um, he was saying, you know, next time we have recess, I'm going to knock you down. Or whatever else, you know, third graders. He was a fourth grader, actually. I was a third grader. I was scared to death. But I had a cousin in fourth grade. His name was Dwayne. And Dwayne was one of those kids. He, he was bigger than all the other kids. Uh, he was one of the bigger kids in the elementary at that time for whatever reason. And um, the next recess, I, I, don't, I didn't learn anything in school that day because I knew from the morning recess that when the afternoon recess came, I was in trouble from Herbie. And I'm not kidding you, when I got to recess <laughs> and I saw Herbie headed towards me, I ran as fast as I could to my cousin Dwayne. Dwayne protected me, Right? But what I wanted to do was stick my tongue out of him and say, nah, 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 you can't touch me. But isn't that kind of the way we are when we're suffering? We, we want somebody, we want to be able to offer a threat. You're threatening me. You're threatening me. You're picking on me. And, and um, we don't do that. We just follow the example of Jesus Christ and, and trust things to God. Sometimes when I'm accused falsely, there arises in me a desire to retaliate, to be honest with you. When I'm falsely accused that sometimes an unfit word may come from my mouth, believe it or not, speaking of a critic who's attacked unjustly, I can't imagine what it is to never commit a sin, to to never have anything come out of your mouth that's not right, to be reviled in ways that I can't even comprehend like Jesus was, and yet never revile in return, to unjustly suffer and yet utter no threat. It is, it is unbelievable what Jesus did. He was under sustained and repeated provocation his whole ministry, but most especially during his, his passion. He, they provoked him to the breaking point and they could not get him to break a silence. They couldn't make any sin come out of his mouth. Why? Because there was no sin in his heart whatsoever. Yesterday in the, in the men's fellowship, Bill Zirden delivered an excellent lesson on the connection between the heart and sin. And all sin comes from the heart. We don't just slip up. We, it comes from your heart. Jesus didn't sin because his heart was completely upright and pure. Now notice something else about this passage. It says, when he was reviled. Reviled is a verb that means to use abusive language. It's it's language, vile language against someone. It's literally to pile up abuse. And it's in the present participle, which indicates it's done repeatedly. It's w- when Jesus was reviled and it's just piling on Jesus. Uh, bad statement, lie after lie, um, unfounded accusation after unfounded accusation. Just piling up, piling up. And he did not revile in return. Now, how did he do this? How did how was he able to do this? You may be sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, Jared? I am suffering unjustly. Maybe it's at the hands of a family member. Maybe it's at the hands of somebody at work. Maybe a neighbor doesn't like you and is saying wrong things about you. It could be so close as it could be a spouse. I don't know. And you're saying to me, Jared, I am almost literally at the breaking point of this unjust suffering that I'm receiving. How do I make it through? The answer is found right in our passage. How did Jesus do it? How, How did Jesus make it through? The answer, he entrusted himself to God. Look at the end of verse number 23 but continued entrusting himself to him who just judges justly. When you as a Christian are persecuted unjustly in your job, in your family, or in whatever environment you're in, when we're persecuted unjustly, we are to follow the standard of Jesus Christ. And that is to take it without retaliation whatsoever and simply continuously trust ourselves into the care of the One who will bring a righteous verdict in our lives. And who will grant to us eternal glory that our faithfulness wins. That's the point. No matter how much you're criticized, no matter how much you're maligned, misrepresented, misunderstood, unjustly treated, no matter how much of that goes on, there can be a perfect calm and a perfect peace in your heart because you commit yourself continually to the perfect judge who will not make a mistake when it comes to evaluating your life. Isn't that comforting? There's another dimension to this. I'm reminded of the words of Romans 12:19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Leaving justice to God. Leaving vengeance to God is what we are to do. God in His vengeance... Will not over avenge. God in His vengeance will under avenge. Isn't that wonderful to know? It's absolutely perfect. It's it's better than we can do. There, there's times when we when we don't see something going on, we tend to think that justice isn't being done, and it's at these times you need to daily entrust yourself to God, who's keeping accounts who will punish all injustice. He will do it perfectly and more complete than you or any human government could ever do. And that's a uh, comforting truth. But I want to move on to the second point, and that is God, Jesus, our substitution. Look, Peter goes back to Isaiah 53, and he says that Jesus suffered for you. In verse number 24, Peter picks us up, and he says, For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Uh, in, in Isaiah 53, it says, Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by the knowledge that the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Did you hear that? He, the righteous son, servant, will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. That's substitution. Let me tell you something else. That is also completely unfair and unjust, isn't it? Isn't it unjust that Jesus... Took upon himself my sin? Saying, yeah, Jared, that's really unjust. Well, he took yours too, if you're a believer. And he took it to the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for you. So unjust what happened to Jesus Christ, but he did it to take our place. This is completely unfair. But what I want to do is focus on the why. Why the substitution? Why does Peter mention the substitution? This is where it gets really good. I want you to pay attention. And I know I'm, I'm getting deep into the passage a little bit. But notice what he does. The second half of this verse. Why the substitution? That, this is the purpose, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the reason Jesus' substitution on the cross for us. Turn to 1 Peter 3.18 with me real quick. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Christ's death covered the giant chasm between our unrighteousness and God in His holiness, being put to death in the flesh, And made alive in the Spirit. The purpose of the substitution. Get this. The purpose of Jesus substituting his life on the cross for yours. Is that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. When you die to sin. That means that you have the ability. Through Christ Jesus to not sin anymore. And when you live to righteousness. That means in Jesus Christ. You now have a new power. To not sin like you used to sin. Amen? What a wonderful blessing that is. Christ died for our sins that we might have the power to follow His example. Can you suffer unjustly and honor God with your mouth? Yes, you can, because Christ did it and He gave you the power. Because Jesus died so that you might die to sin. Can you suffer unjustly and not retaliate? The answer is yes, because Jesus died that you might live to righteousness. If it weren't for the substitution, we couldn't follow the example. The example of Jesus Christ is a high bar. When we're suffering unjustly, don't retaliate, don't talk back, don't sin. Don't do any of these things. That's a very high example. How do you have the power to do it? Because Jesus substituted his life for yours so that you can die to sin and live for righteousness. You can die to the temptation to sin. And you can live in such a way that you do not sin with your mouth and you do not sin with your actions or or any of these other things What a wonderful blessing it is the way Peter tells us what Jesus did. Now look at one more little phrase in verse number 24. By his wounds you have been healed. Now this looks back to Isaiah 53.5. Turn there with me, will you? Isaiah 53.5. We're almost wrapping this up. By his wounds you're healed. Now that is a really strange phrase. I think. when When I read this passage and I'm looking at Peter's logic, and we get down to this little last phrase, "By his wounds you're healed." I'm thinking to myself, how does this fit in with everything else? Isaiah 53:5 says this: "But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace, and with his wounds we're healed." Now the question is this: you ready? Healed of what? Healed of what? And this gets really good. Look at verse number twenty-five. Here's another purpose statement. This is unpacking what he just said. Four. Did you catch that? Four. Look back at First um, Peter two twenty-five. Four. You were straying like sheep, and have now returned to the shepherd and the overseeing seer of your souls. What is the healing? The healing is we now have fellowship with God. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Man sinned, fellowship was broken, and since then man has been straying. How does this bearing our sins result in our dying to sin and living to righteousness? When he bore our sins, he healed us. And that healing was taking a strained people that didn't have God and changed us. And the the word that Peter uses here is return to us to fellowship with the shepherd. We have a new relationship with God. We have a new peace, a new fellowship with him. And the healing breaks the power of the attractiveness of sin and endears the righteous that, that God performed for us. Did you catch that? It breaks the attractiveness of sin. When we understand that sin is so terrible in the eyes of God that Jesus died on the cross, it breaks the power of that attractiveness. And then you think, what kind of God would suffer and die on the cross for me? Take my sin on. That's the kind of person I want to know that's the attractive kind of person and i want to get to know that and sin becomes less attractive and christ becomes more attractive that's the healing that's going on here we have the power to overcome sin christ died to break its power you have the power to entrust yourself to god during unjust suffering because christ suffered to make it possible He's the pattern. Entrust yourself to God and be faithful. And He will give you a crown of life. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. I quoted Him last week. I want to quote Him again. In the Beatitudes, He said this. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. How? Falsely on my account. What are we to react? How are we to react? Rejoice. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reason that you can rejoice in unjust persecution is knowing in heaven you have a great reward. You ever feel like every time... Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm in the game whack-a-mole. You know that game? When they pop up and... And every time I do something right, it's like whack. Anybody ever feel that way? It, no good deed will go unpunished, so, so to speak. And you, you think to yourself, God, you know, I'm following you. I'm doing what's right. And every time I do something right, I get whacked back down again. Well, you know what? It's only temporary because your reward in heaven is great. Christ, the suffering servant, took our sins upon the cross, did not revile, was a perfect example of how we should live. And He gave us the power to have that kind of faith and that kind of action. And He broke the power of sin in our life so that we can live to righteousness. And when He helps us that way, then He goes on to say, your reward in heaven is great. What a mighty God we serve, don't we? If you're suffering here today, you're thinking to yourself, I don't know how much I can keep going. The answer is you can keep going. And you can keep doing the right thing. And you can keep not sinning because God's watching. You're following the pattern of Jesus Christ. And God is pleased every day that you do the right thing. Every day that you don't sin with your mouth. And He's going to reward you greatly. And it's all all this is possible. Because Jesus' unjust death on the cross. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for what You did. I'm reminded of the, the words of the hymn, You broke the power of canceled sin. Lord, we thank You so much for that. Now, I know people are suffering unjustly right here today. Because I've heard it. They didn't use those terms. But when I hear the family problems, the work problems, uh, whatever other kind of issues are going on, that's exactly what they're saying. Lord, I I pray that You'll transform that suffering into great glory in heaven. I pray that You will transform their lives so that they can keep doing what's right, keep following and trusting You because they know that that That's the pattern of Jesus, and they want to glorify him. And Lord, when when Christ empowers them, I pray that you'll just keep rewarding, keep rewarding, and give them a joy that is not even an earthly joy. It's something that people can't even comprehend. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.